Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. It's boiling hot outside, so come on in. You don't have to stand on the porch and look through the window. Come on in, soak up some of the air conditioning. Take your shirt off if you want. I don't really care. Let your freak flag fly at the House of Kraus. Just be comfortable and sit back and listen to the really interesting conversation that I am about to unveil for you. We'll get to that in a second. First up though, I want to tell you a story. This week I had planned on bringing you a conversation with Idris Elba. Now everybody loves this guy. He's on track to be the world's highest grossing actor for this year because of course he starred in some of the biggest hits of this year like The Jungle Book, Finding Dory, Zootopia. He's got the new Star Trek movie coming out. Next year he's got at least four more movies coming out. This guy is busy. I loved Luther. He was amazing on the wire. So why wouldn't you want to have Idris Elba come by for a chat? Well, it was happening. It was a phone conversation. He was in New York. I was at the House of Kraus. Uh, there were delays. There's always delays for these kind of things, but the delays rolled over from minutes into hours. And I waited and I waited. And finally, the phone rang for real, not a publicist telling me that I was going to have to wait a little bit longer. And there it was. Idris Elba's familiar husky London accent on the other end of the phone. Now, unfortunately, we had to do one of those, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? How about now? Because he's on a cell phone, but he's in New York. I'll take that. I'll accept that. It sounded like we were on two tin cans connected by string, but I thought, whatever, I can, I can work with that. I just wanted to talk to Idris Elba. I asked him a question. I asked him about his childhood memories of Star Trek. Now, normally at this point on the House of Crows podcast, I would drop that quote in there right now. I would say, this is what we talked about. Boom, there it is. Well, I'm not going to bother because it was 23 seconds long, 50 words, five zero words. And essentially, he just said, hey, it's a show that me, my mom, and my dad watched together. It was an imaginative show. I liked it. Uh, my mom liked it. That's essentially what he had to say. Only he said it better because he's got the great voice and a cool accent. Uh, and then the line went dead. That was it. That was my 23 seconds with Idris Elba. Not worth sharing with you. I thought the story, uh, just to get it off my chest, was worth sharing with you, though. So there you have it. No Idris, but I have replaced him with another English accent. A great English accent. London-born Roger Christian. Now, it's a name that you might not recognize right off the top of your head, unless you happen to know who won an Academy Award for uh, doing the set decoration on Star Wars, or who was nominated for designing Alien, or who directed uh, Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, and Return of the Jedi as a second unit director. These are things that you would notice if you looked at the credits of those movies. He's also gone on to direct uh, The Black Angel, The Sender, Nostradamus, lots of other things, but he's probably best known as the man who designed the lightsaber, the guy who designed C-3PO. It's a, kind of an unbelievable legacy to have behind you, and he's now written a book and the book is called Cinema Alchemist, Designing Star Wars and Alien. Uh, Roger Christian is his name. It's in stores this week. Uh, check it out. It's a memoir that really focuses very heavily on his work uh, with George Lucas and with Ridley Scott. 
gives you all the kind of behind the scenes and the, the, the background details that you really want to know. He was gracious enough to sit down with me and we had a, a wide-ranging conversation about Star Wars, about using your imagination, about how he actually made some of the things that he had to make. How do you create something from nothing? Because if you'll remember, Star Wars was made on a very limited budget. And, you know, if George Lucas didn't have that much money to play around with, you can only imagine how little money Roger Christian and his team were given. It's a great story. He tells it well. Uh, here's my chat with cinema alchemist Roger Christian. So uh, let's let's set the stage. Let's tell everyone about uh, your work uh, just pre-Star Wars. Let's start there because you didn't just walk in and all of a sudden design these movies that became <sighs> worldwide phenomenons. You were a set decorator and worked on uh, a lot of cool. You worked with Ken Russell. You worked with Monty Python. You worked with a lot of people. Yes, and um, I was actually in Mexico on a film called Lucky Lady written by Gloria and Willard Hike, who were friends of George Lucas's, and they did some of the preliminary work on um, Star Wars for him, right. character work. The film was 1920s rum running in America, and we were doing um, really dusty Western-like sets in uh, Mexico in Wymus, this tiny little fishing port. And uh, Fox... At that time, all the major studios were after young directors because right. they had lost their kind of credibility with audiences. And, and the studio system had fallen apart, and, you know, they, they were looking to sort of hip things up a little bit, right? They were. So Alan Ladd chose George Lucas because of American Graffiti, and his worst nightmare existed when George walked in and said, I've got this science fiction <laughs> fantasy to make. And science fiction was dead at that time. There was no audience for it. But he stuck with it, and... What happened with <laughs> budgeting, they said, well, the film will make $12 million, so we'll give you four. If you can make your film for four, then uh, we'll make it. And Peter Beale in UK and Sandy Lieberson were the heads of Fox, and they said, we're half price to America. The budget was eight, so they said, we can do this film for four. And that got to George, and Gloria and Willard said, you should go down to Mexico and meet... John Barry, the designer, and Roger Christian, who's set decorating, and look at their work because it's exactly what you're talking about. And that's what happened. I'm direct set decorating this old salt factory from the <laughs> 20s, and a car arrives, out comes two students, basically, and I felt like a student. And uh, George in his plaid shirt and white sneakers and jeans, <laughs> which he always wore, and Gary with a cowboy hat, and out they walked, introduced themselves. We had a discussion briefly about science fiction, and I told him then I really didn't connect to any films before, except for a you know film like Alphaville or Solaris, and um, I felt they should all be old and dusty and used, and spaceships should be oily. and And George said, "That's what I'm doing," and um, he helped me. I was spreading salt with shovels around <laughs> to make it look like a salt factory. So he helped me while we chatted, and then. Uh, we had dinner that night, and then we were hired. And what was your first impression of George Lucas? When he came out, he's wearing the white sneakers, he's got the jeans and the plaid shirt on, but what did you think of him as a person? Well, his dedication to what he wanted to make was very clear to me, and, and 
from that first conversation, he and I never had to discuss how to do something. I understood intrinsically what he wanted. And when he said, I'm trying to make a space western, I understood it's got to be old and used and nothing should look designed. And mm -hmm. that's George's mantra throughout. I, I, I made, you know, the sets, the props, the everything. Uh, George never once ever rejected anything that I did ever on the entire film. And we'll talk about some of the minutiae which is contained in Cinema Alchemist, Designing Star Wars and Alien, a memoir by Roger Christian. We'll talk about all that uh, in a second, but I know that that look, that kind of aesthetic, went on to influence so much science fiction that came afterwards, Blade Runner and all that. Can you watch things now and go, oh, yeah, that's me. I, uh, I, I came up with that idea. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, even to Avatar, he followed the same mantra. He, he built what he could and made it look used. Nothing, right. even on that complete fantasy, still is a world that an audience connects with because James Cameron understands it. Those who've gone out and made films oh, wow, I'm doing these weird sets and fantasy. It doesn't connect to an audience, you know, and I watched, I mean, the, the one that really, really got me excited was A Force Awakens because right. he went back to everything we did on that first film and there was my lightsaber I made for $9, I think, in the first one. There it was. It, it, it is kind of amazing that this movie that you worked on so many 40 years ago, 35 years ago, I guess now, that that no one had any real expectation for at the time uh, has gone on to become this this phenomenon. I mean, I won't ask the obvious thing is like, did you expect it to become a big hit? But looking back, how has it changed things for you, and and what does it mean to you? Um, a huge amount. I, George actually said there were only five people stood by his side throughout the making of Star Wars and he included me in that five. Um, that was true. But we, you know, when George arrived in London, they hadn't greenlit the film. George paid us out of his money he was owed on graffiti for four <laughs> months. And just John Barry, I and Les Dilly, another art director, we worked for four months trying to work out how in the hell to make this <laughs> film for four million dollars because it was still a huge fantasy. Um, and I think... I, I've always been, I got through youth, through legend and myth, you know, King right. Arthur, all of these things. There's stuff that got me when I was through a world that was after the World War One and Two, and very bland and grey, and it got me through life, really, saved me. So immediately I read the script, I knew, oh, here we go, this is a new myth for a, a cinema age. Um, and I fought with John Barry to get everything we could up on the screen with a lot of naysayers around us and a lot of um, not very happy atmosphere on the set. Right. But we really, you know, and it's, I mean, the, the this lightsaber they put on the cover of the book, really I made and I found as a holy grail, and that whole story of doing that is in the book, but it's probably now the most iconic film prop in the history of the planet. Um, and it, it, as I said, I think I made it. It was about nine pounds. It was about twelve dollars. <laughs> and I, I was always using found objects. I yeah. couldn't design stuff. I couldn't afford to. And if I could find something that looked real, there it was. So, those things have followed now. And of course, it's it's been a huge, um, you know. And I'm still friends with George. Right. Um, and it's been a huge kind of pleasure for me, basically because. 
I always felt myth and legend is very important growing up mm -hmm. in human beings. There are keys in there we don't understand, but they connect to our subconscious. Joseph Campbell said, George Lucas is the only true living myth maker today, right. and it's true. So I, my part in making a modern legend to me is more than anything. Did you grow up in London? Yes. Yeah, so you grew up in London post-war. Yeah. And it must have been fairly bleak. Bombed out buildings everywhere that weren't rebuilt until maybe a decade or two afterwards. There were it, it, So describe that to me and then tell me if that's maybe where... Uh, myth comes in and legend as sort of maybe an escape from all the bleakness that was around you? No, absolutely. When I was young, I was just outside London in Reading, um, which was even worse. Um, it had a uh, <laughs> it had a jail where they put Oscar Wilde in. It had a right. biscuit factory and it had a beer factory and that was about it. No theatre. Um, yeah, and I, apparently when I was six months old, the house at the front of the house blew in with a flying bomb, so... And wow. we had ketchup on the table, and they thought I was covered in blood. So <laughs> that probably affected my subconscious. I'm <laughs> thing with explosions from now on. Um, but yeah, no, that you know that world, and I, I rebelled against it from when I was two years old. Um, and I remember I hated school. And there's a funny common denominator amongst directors: they were all bad at school and hated right. it. Right. And not because we weren't smart, it's because we were treated so appallingly, especially in those days. So I would escape or I would escape into books or whatever. And uh, I think that kind of London at that time especially was very yeah, gritty and bombed and earthy. And that look appealed to me always. I know Ken Russell took a lot of photographs, who went on to become a great film director, but uh, he started off as a photographer, and his pictures of post-war London and uh, people posing in the rubble and that sort of thing, they are uh, terrifyingly beautiful, I think is a, a good way to describe them. Yeah, and he was a big influence. In the early days, he, he made films for BBC television, right. which were often black and white on composers, and they were also a big influence on me. They were amazingly um, um, kind of uh, different dramas to what else was going out there. His were real, yeah. uh, black and white. Well, he certainly broke rules. And, and, and one of the things, and we, we won't turn this into a conversation about Ken Russell, who I wrote a book right. about, So, but uh, he, he broke the rules. And, and a lot of the things that he established, like uh, having different actors play the same character at different phases in their lives are still things that we see in film today. And, and he, he, he changed things because he kind of didn't care about the established rules. No. And, and that's he, what made him great. You no, know, he was, you know, and I was around when he made um, a lot of his films yeah. and I worked on Marlowe. I art direct, well, I designed it for yeah. him with another. And also I, I always revered him. I thought yeah. he was great. He did break huge rules. I was there when he made Tommy. I was in the same studios. And John Borman, right. another British director. But, you know, my my kind of creative influences came really from the Red Shoes from Narcissus that right. Michael Powell had made, who really broke the establishment. M Michael Powell, if if you're out there listening and you don't know who that is, because he kind of fell off. I mean, after Peeping Tom, right? No, no they killed him. He, they, that, that, he made this... 
strange movie about a photographer who killed women with his the 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 easel oh, not the easel the tripod yeah. that the, uh, on his camera and it destroyed his career. He was a genius. He was married to Thelma Schumacher yes. who edits all of Martin Scorsese's films and he is a forgotten legend. He's he, someone that should be remembered. Yeah, and I was fortunate to meet him. I had a deal at Coppola and Francis yeah. rescued him right. and he was working there running around helping on the set and I got to talk to him and meet him and um the thing that most struck me, he wasn't bitter. He just yeah. said that I made a film. I was trying to be prophetic about what would happen with cinema and violence, that how it would influence somebody who's an isolated case. Yeah. And it destroyed him. But <laughs> he was trying to make another film. Yeah, I mean, these, you know, an Alphaville, Jean-Luc Godard made Alphaville. And that, to me, is the first graphic novel movie right. ever made. And it was brilliant. It was a huge influence. I, I, we spoke to George about it with Star Wars. <laughs> You designed the lightsaber. You designed R2-D2. These are things that, that are such a part of our everyday uh, uh, life. I mean, you know, if you go on Facebook, yesterday I was sort of getting ready to, to making some notes to, to come in here and talk to you about it. And I'm scrolling down through Facebook in a completely unrelated thing. And there's a great picture of uh, uh, R2-D2. And I just thought, wow, this is like Roger did this, you know. And it was just someone posting going, "Cool shot of R two D 2 And I thought, wow, this is this this must kind of blow your mind a little bit. This this legacy that you've left behind. Yeah, it does. And I, in the book, I I go through the making of everything. I describe it. I have an extremely good memory, so I've gone through every single aspect of the film and how it was made and how we made all these things. And that R2-D2 was the first thing we ever made. And there's a picture in the book of George with the wooden one we made with a carpenter with wood he brought in. We, they didn't give us any money to build anything <laughs> with. I found a lamp top from an old film uh, lamp called a rifle lamp in a junk pile. And we bought it for 10 shillings, which is like Nothing 50 cents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that fitted, so that became his top. And then I got airplane nozzles from an old um, rental place I knew, and they let me have them because they didn't want them. <laughs> they got stuck in, and... Then Bill, the carpenter who made him, said, I can't do those little arms on the front, so I carved those with a penknife myself at night and stuck them in. They're still there. That's still R2-D2. All those things got moulded up. And where is the wooden R2-D2 now? Did he make it through the, the years? No one knows. Yeah. I don't know where that went, whether some of the special effects had it, but I think it would have been brought out. So I thought about making another one <laughs> with Bill. He lives here in Toronto. Oh, wow. He moved here and became one of the biggest construction managers here. So I said to him, could you make one? He went, oh, yeah, I could make that, Roger, don't worry. Well, I mean, that's that's something that you could tour around with. Yeah, it is. I yeah. think probably we should do it. And and when you see R2-D2, you know, as you're on social media, or I think the last time we spoke, I told you I was driving down St. Clair here in Toronto, and someone had made a, a, a big uh, C-3PO, no, an R2-D2 uh, a cake. And I right. thought, now, when you see that, do you see it as uh, part of your part of your history, or is it just now so common and it's so everywhere that you're you're almost immune to it? No, I think you know. I mean, it it does come up, and every birthday I get, you know, our wedding we had lightsabers <laughs> and, and uh, stormtroopers and all this stuff. So no, I still get a kick out of it. And you know, being at the Force Awakens premiere, there was the R two D two that 
and they yeah. I, I, I had a long chat with them and said yours works way better than ours ever did on uh, the first <laughs> film ours kept breaking down and we pulled it with fishing wire most of the scenes in uh, in Tunisia in the desert it never worked the radio control it was so primitive and there was so little time to develop them that we were doing it it was shoestring yeah, well, literally, you're pulling it on a string. It's yeah, a... <laughs> we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had Anthony Daniels in here, and he told me that that suit that he wore uh, was uh, uncomfortable in the extreme as R2-D2. It, was, uh, it didn't fit really well, and, and but he said the first time he walked out of the tent, people were quite amazed. Were you there for that? Yes, I was there because I made the eyes. I, <laughs> I foolishly won what We met John Barry and I and the art directors and the, the construction manager and the prop master met every morning in my office because I had a kettle and I made tea and we had <laughs> McVitie's chocolate biscuits that seemed to fuel the British film industry. <laughs> and we were talking, you know, things that we would go through because we were so busy, there was so little time. Fox only greenlit the picture in January and we were shooting at the end of March. I mean, this is a yeah. huge science fiction picture and we were shooting in the desert in Tunisia. So... We would go through things at the beginning of the day, and I one day said, you know, the eyes, I think, I I did a process where we did a, a one-way mirror on a bit of perspex for something else, and they said, great, do the eyes. Suddenly I'm in my office <laughs> thinking, oh, my goodness. So I had to make brass, and I had to work out how to make the eyes, how he could see out, but we couldn't see in, because I hated that when you saw right. eyes. So, yeah, I made his eyes... <laughs> Wow. And then they had to disguise wires and put the batteries into the... Uh, they were all complaining, saying, how are we going to put batteries inside this? But we had to do it. And it was very uncomfortable for him, really uncomfortable. It sounds like when you're working on this first movie that, you know, you think of these film sets as being very organised and being very, especially a big production like this, or what we think of now as a big production. Uh, but it sounds like it was kind of a little bit more haphazard than that. Yeah, it was. Um, it it we were running. I mean, I didn't have a day off, not a Sunday, a bank holiday, nothing in almost a year, not one, never. And I would drive home at night, ten o'clock, and I had three choices of takeout: a spud you like, which was baked potatoes, <laughs> Indian or Chinese, and that was it. And I grab it on the way home. That that was the way we worked. Um, and the sets all went up. I mean, there were armies of people, and we found a cheap way to make the uh, Death Star, we bought a machine that they all complained about. It was £10,000 at the time, but it could print out sheets of um, like a, a, a PVC, right. original of it. And in fact, that's how C-3PO and the Stormtroopers were printed. It saved our bacon, and we printed thousands of sheets of Death Star panels and those went up, and you could just staple them up. That made it work. And then I, I took a load of those down because I had to build that crashed spaceship in the desert outside the um, cantina. Which there's pictures of in the book here. Yeah, and I, it was there to hide a tree. We couldn't cut the tree down, <laughs> and we didn't want a tree. And George had it, Ralph Macquarie painted a crashed spaceship to give scale, and that I took all those down and burnt them with a blowtorch down there and made that work. <laughs> It's a fascinating book. You've got loads of photographs here that no one's seen before. There's archival set photography, I guess, that was just been sitting in uh, someone's archive somewhere that it's you were Lucas, able to access. Yeah, in the Lucasfilm archive. That, what John Rinsler, who wrote The Making of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, who was the head of Lucas literature, 
edited the book for me because I needed somebody to really who knew this yeah. world, and of course he knew it. So um, I had access through Lucas to the archives, and I found some hidden old black and white contacts because all of the photographs from the time in Lee Studios, which were when we spent the four months with George, have mm -hmm. gone. No one knows where they are. Really? So I found one of our um, mock-up, land, Luke's Landspeeder. Right with the carpenter in bell bottoms looking very 60s. <laughs> um, I found that. That's the only picture I think that exists in Lee Studios. Um, and then I found other ones of me because I one day I, I had to say to George, you know, I can't afford to dress these sets. I can't afford to buy the stuff. I've got an idea. I don't know if it'll work, but if I buy aeroplane scrap and scrap it, take it to bits yeah. and stick it on the walls in an engineering kind of way, I think I could create the Millennium Falcon and other props. And George, because he'd made THX and because he was a, a, a independent director, didn't fire me on the spot because <laughs> any other American director would have done yeah. and said, do it. And I found some photographs hidden from old contacts of me up in the first journey ever buying jet engines and scrap. Um, and it worked, thank God. I didn't know it would work. Well, how did it work then? So you're creating these things. It sounds, you know, on a daily basis, you're being presented with these huge problems. But are they shooting at the same time? Are you building while they're actually making the film? Totally. Yeah, We they decided because of the heat uh, to do Tunisia first. Mm. I was sent down with Les Dilly. So we were, um, we were running. I mean, I it was from Tozer, which is deep in the heart of the south in the desert, to Jerba, where we filmed the exterior of the cantina and those, um, those kind of interesting dome buildings yeah, that yeah. were there. That was a 14-hour drive, and there's no phones at that time. Right. We, we had to phone London to get a phone call <laughs> out. So <laughs> I was often driving for... They, they in the end felt sorry for me and got me two hotel rooms with all the drawings in it because mm. I would have to do this drive often through the night... If there was a flood in one place, I'd have to go and do it. So we were there on the set whenever I could be at the shoot to help, and then I would be racing ahead getting the sets ready for Matt Marta, which is Luke's underground, to all the Gerber sets. Um, and at the same time, they were building in London, and then I had to race back. I think we were almost onto the cantina first. Um, and... Before I went, we got the hold and the Millennium Falcon cockpit done, and that was my test to see if it would work. Right. And when you're putting scrap into these sets, it doesn't look anything. Until you put it all in, it's right. all encrusted. Then you age it, then you put a bit of paint and you put stuff in. Then it works. So um, it was a gamble. And, and the stuff that was shot in Tunisia... You built it, you do the whole thing, and then is it just torn apart and thrown away, or does it exist somewhere? No. Uh, well, I found I couldn't afford to get the big skeleton that Ralph Macquarie had drawn into the desert when right. R2-D2 and C-3PO first land. Right. I found, by chance, digging around in the old film prop stores, I yeah. found a dinosaur of bones <laughs> and laid it out, and George said, that'll do, and I took that down. That got left. They said, the right. production manager said, leave it. We can't afford to tra transport that back. That's still there in the desert. In a hundred years, someone's going to find it and yeah. say, there were dinosaurs yeah, in Tunisia. dinosaurs in Tunisia. <laughs> and then, you know, and all the sets now, unfortunately, because of the polish, you can't go, but there's now tours around the Star Wars right. sets from the first film. They're still there. Have but, you gone? 
I've been back because um, we were shooting there because of Phantom Menace. Right. So um, I've been back and had a look, yeah. And did it bring back memories for you, or what, what, what did that stir up for you? Yeah, no, because it, 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 to me, you know, I love those countries anyway. Yeah. I love being there. I love the culture and the food and everything. So I'm as happy when I'm down there. And then being part of that ancient kind of world that we created and seeing it and still existing and that it's now architectural kind of recognized monuments yeah. it's quite touching yeah uh tell me a little bit then about just the, the the state of mind while you're making this because you say you like myths you're a fan of legend you thought oh this is really cool but as you're piecing this together it sounds like a piece at a time from a junk store here and uh, you know pulling things from your imagination and creating it did you think it would work I had a blind faith that it would work because yeah. I used to do it when I was young to my dinky toys. I would paint them up and put them out in the garden and dress them and make <laughs> it look real. I'd try yeah, and yeah. photograph them rather than being toys. So I, I thought it would work. But the, when I bought the scrap, and no one wanted it at that time, it was sold by weight, so I could buy half an aeroplane for £50. You know, that <laughs> saved me as well, budget-wise. The big It was like a 16-wheeler truck came into the first time ever into EMI Studios. The prop master, Frank Bruton, who did Kubrick's films and David Lean, he was one yeah. of the giants. I loved him dearly. He was a very good man. Was standing next to me as this thing backed in because we'd stripped his prop room out. <laughs> Normally there were shelves for paintings and right. furniture. This thing backed in. He looked at me and then he was looking at it. He didn't even look at me. All I heard was, you know, you're mad boy, don't you? <laughs> And that kind of summed it up. I thought, yeah, <laughs> I'm taking a huge risk here, but it worked. Um, um, I got the props because he, he said, what do you need? And I said, we need tools. We've got to break this down. And then I explained to them, I need 10 of everything. I need things duplicated like an aeroplane. And then I taught them how to put it to look engineered, not random. Right. And... Um, that first set, you know, I took George down to the Millennium Falcon cockpit and George just smiled. That was his, that was my con, right. um, confirmation that we'd done it. That's, I've heard that about him. Yeah. That he, he's not one really to say, hey, that's a great job. No. He gets a smile on his face and yeah. you know you've hit it. No, and I, I always got that. That was when the moment, and they're in the book here. The uh, I said, you know, there's something missing, George, and I think we should, it, in American graffiti, you put dice in Luke, in, uh, in, um, Harrison Ford's car had a skull and crossbones, and in Ron Howard's car there was a dice, like the hanging. fuzzy dice hanging yeah. in the on the, on I the said that, rear view mirror. Yeah, and it did well at graffiti. I think we should put him in here for good luck. And it's the kind of thing that <laughs> Han Solo would do. And he said that's a good idea. I presented six different dice. He chose the chrome ones. <laughs> we put them in, and then I was off doing other sets. And I think the DP took them out, so they're only there in about three shots on Star Wars. <laughs> But J.J. Abrahams yeah. set, had an assistant for three months, tracked down the same dice, and he's put them back in the Millennium Cockpit. The, the same actual yeah. pair? And on the Vanity Fair <laughs> Star Wars cover, they're there in the cockpit. Someone on Reddit told me that and said, wow. you should check. He's really gone to town to be authentic. What did you think of, of the last Star Wars film? I... I think I loved it. I just yeah. thought he'd brought back what all the fans had wanted and yeah. that was very important and that 
The first film is kind of a treasure in people's minds, and uh, he brought back that kind of light touch to it, but gave it a mythic quality. Yeah. And it's exactly what everybody wanted with the characters and everything. And there it was Star Wars again, I thought. Why did you get the idea to do this? People must have been at you for years to say, come on. They were. Put and it down on paper. They were. And I had so many questions about how did, what is this, what was, how was this made, what was this come yeah. from, all of that stuff. And then David West Reynolds used to be the head of Lucasfilm Literature. He plagued me for years to write it. And he said, you're the only one, you've got a perfect memory of that time, you're the only one left, and you're the only one who was actually there, because John Barry died very young. Right. And you and, were at the heart of it. And you were the third person hired on the movie, right? On yeah, the first Star Wars correct. movie. John Barry was first, uh, Jeffrey Unsworth, the DP on Lucky Lady, was second, and I was the third one. Yeah, <laughs> that's in the Making of Star Wars book. Then David West Reynolds pushed me and pushed me, and yep. then I got so many requests, and I'd done a few of the conventions and everything, and I thought, you know what, I've got to do this. I, it took a year okay. of just sitting at a computer and writing and writing and writing and researching and writing. And then it really has been six years to get to this day that it's published. Um, and I wrote 600 pages of all my career to date because thinking outside the box has been with me since I was three years old. And it, quite honestly, if, if the film had been presented to a classic British art department who did everything built in the studios by the old methods, the film would never be made. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have been. So John Barry and I thought around all the problems, thought, how in the hell can we do this? And I think that's part of my thinking, working with Ken Russell, working with, right. you know, I knew John Borman well, I knew a lot of these directors and thinking there's a different way. And I, I used to watch all of European cinema, which was low budget, but amazing. And, you know, I was always told to shape up in the art department <laughs> when I first started, get a suit, cut my hair. Right and stop watching all of this other stuff and just concentrate on a career and spend 20 years on the drawing board. I couldn't do that. Um, so I think that all of that came into the making of this. That, unfortunately, in the end, the publishers cut all of the opening out, but right. we, we concentrated on Star Wars and Alien, which is really what people want to read about. That's okay. It's, it's interesting. Terry Gilliam told me one time that when he was making uh, the Holy Grail movie, that he wanted King Arthur and his men to come over the hill on horseback, and it was going to be very grand. But they couldn't afford They only had a million bucks to make the whole movie, and the horses were going to cost uh, $20,000 or something. And so he had to rethink it. So he put everyone on uh, like broomsticks and had someone with coconuts following behind them doing this. And it's the scene that everybody remembers from the movie. And he said, you know, if I had had an unlimited amount of money, I'd be a terrible filmmaker because I never had to think my way around problems. Yes. Those coconuts live in Toronto, by the way. With Do Bill they? Harmon. Yes. I've actually played them. Really? They're the same ones from the film, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to have to look this guy up. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll connect you to him. He's got them. Clunk, clunk, clunk. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that story, but it just shows that <laughs> a bit of imagination goes a very long way, which is how you've built your career. Yes. And then the, the last quarter of the book is Black Angel, which um, yeah. when I then, after Alien and Life of Brian, I thought, that's it. I've got to do what I really want to do. And I'd written this medieval myth, 25-minute short yeah. film, because, you know, you keep talking about doing it. And I realize you've got to put your money where your mouth is. 
And George Lucas, bless him, um, chose it as the short film to go out with Empire Strikes Back. And I was given £25,000 from the British government to make it. Well, I was making a medieval epic in yeah. Scotland at the time because <laughs> I was trying to do what Kurosawa does and I knew I could do it in Scotland. So I, I thinned it all down to um, almost a Tarkovsky-like experience whereby I was connecting to the subconscious because it was a myth. I couldn't yeah. afford to do the rest. I spent all my money on two horses that I had to have. <laughs> they they got far more. I got no salary. <laughs> and um, the that is the last quarter of the book, and there's my kind of very rough storyboards in there. And John Rinsler, who edited the book, said it's really a masterclass for anyone wanting to become a filmmaker, how to make an epic on a shoestring with no money. So, And then this book kind of ends up now, 35 years later, um, I always wanted to make what I had written and conceived, which was a, a kind of ancient epic, not medieval, but ancient epic, Hero's Journey. Yeah. And um, because of Lord of the Rings and really because of Game of Thrones, the genre's hot. So I was asked, have you got it? And I said, yes. And I, I spent the last year writing the script. And yeah, that's so, being made now. Yeah, the, We're the, shooting in October. I was going to ask you, so you start shooting in October. Yeah, cool. And yeah. are you shooting in Canada or are you shooting in... No, I'm shooting... Um, I ha it's it's a very ancient kind of world. Right. So we're in Budapest and Belgium. Wow. We're using old palaces and um, sets that exist there from amazing films. They've got ancient cities on yeah. the back lots in in Hungary. Right. And I'll do two days in Morocco because I need um, wet, a kind of dusty beginning. And then I have to shoot in Scotland because they're going to be hurling haggises at me because <laughs> they feel they own this film. I was the first one to put cinemascope images of Scotland right. ever up on the screen. It caused a huge impact at the time. So I have to go and film the, the main castle and some other pieces in Scotland. I, unfortunately, the tax credits and the sets and everything that we need and studios exist in Belgium and Hungary. Right. So, you know, economics, because we've stayed independent. I'm doing it the same way the original Star Wars was made. Exactly. Right. We're down and dirty. I only CGI where I have to have it. Right. I have a, a kind of nasty drake, it's called. It's a kind of creature that um, is in it. I have to do what I have to do, but I'm keeping it down and dirty. What's the thing that most people ask you when they meet you, when they find out all this history? What's the thing that they ask you? Did you make that lightsaber? <laughs> and do you have one? And I do have a very original handle that I made. Um, and I'm going to... I've got some of the original Graflexes. So right. we're going to do that on a YouTube video. So I'll I'll make another one. Um, that really comes up as the main thing. But the thing now, you know, I get three- and four-year-olds coming yeah. up and asking me about Star Wars, yeah. which I think is amazing. I just think that's, that's connection, you know, to something that's really good. It's a very good film what george did yeah. his heart is in it and um I, I that to me is most pleasing but it's yeah r2d2 and, and the lightsaber are the ones and then deep fans want to know about the um the the communicator right that was in the film that c3po used and the stormtrooper used they want to know because there's only 
one of those in existence, and I know where it is. No one knows where it is. I know I've held it in my hand because I had to look at it um, for this. And the story about how I found that was a piece of plumbing, and it dropped in my hand by accident, and it was like destiny. That's all in the book. If you've just tuned in, that was not Idris Elba. That was Roger Christian. Both London guys, so, you know, I can see how you might get confused. Idris didn't work out, but Roger Christian did, and I thought he worked out spectacularly well. His book is called Cinema Alchemist, Designing Star Wars and Alien. Uh, You know, he won an Academy Award for his work on the original Star Wars and was Oscar nominated for his work on Alien. He's a great guy. Lovely to sit down and talk with him. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoyed the cool air. You could hang meat over here at the House of Krauss. That's how cold I like to keep it in here. But you know what? It's all for me. I got to ask you guys to leave. Take off. Get out of here. Go back into the heat. But make sure you come back next Monday. We put a new episode up every single Monday. Rain, shine, heat wave or not. Uh, And you never know who will stop by. It could be one of your favorites. So come on back and sit a spell with us.